Morning, church. In the prayer meeting this morning at 8.30, several people who prayed, prayed that each person who comes to Cherrydale this morning would feel the warm welcome of a church family. Isn't that a great prayer? So let's go to the Lord now as a family as we come around his word under his authority, ready for him to bring encouragement and comfort from his word. Father, we are so grateful that you spoke. But not only that, you continue to speak. Your word, you say, is living and active as your spirit takes truth from your word and applies it to our hearts. So spirit, we ask that you would speak this morning, that you would lift up Christ for us, that you would strengthen us by your word, that you would help us to understand what it looks like for your kingdom to advance in all nations on earth. We pray for your help now that we would see Jesus with clarity this morning. We pray these things in his name, amen. The Great Awakening marked the 18th century in our country's history. In the middle of the Great Awakening, God's spirit was moving with remarkable power. And most denominations in our country experienced astounding numbers of people turning from sin and to Christ for salvation. And then in the mid-19th century, there was a longing for another kind of awakening. And certain leaders in the church began to study what worked in the 18th century in an attempt to reverse engineer another awakening in their generation. They tried to copy and paste the circumstances of the 18th century awakening into the 19th century awakening, longing for God to move. Now, Ian Murray discusses this challenge in his book, Revival, which he says marked the 18th century, and Revivalism, which he says marked the 19th century. We can't force revival. We can't advance God's kingdom by force. And when leaders in the 19th century church tried to do that, they failed. There was a lot of activity, there was a lot of noise, there was a lot of heat, but there was no fire, no meaningful advance of God's kingdom. Now, this is not a commentary on what's happening in Asbury and other college campuses right now. I personally remain hopeful that our spirit is at work in the church and that he's bringing the dead to life and bringing new energy and spiritual vitality to the church. We all long for this. We all long for revival and reawakening in the church, and we need it in every generation. But as Charles Spurgeon said of the 1850s prayer revival in New York City, God alone brings about revival. Or Jonathan Edwards in the middle of the 18th century awakening, he argued that revival only comes through the Holy Spirit's power and that the signs of a genuine spirit-driven revival of the church included four things, an enhanced glory for Jesus, damage to the interests of Satan, a people's greater regard for the Bible, and their greater love for God and for neighbor. The church 
can't advance God's kingdom by force, but by dependence upon God's power. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God, proclaimed and protected by the people of God. And what we see this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 4 is another refusal from King David to take the throne by force. God has promised David from decades before, but he will not angle, he will not manipulate, and he will not murder to take the throne. Instead, David will depend on God, looking for God to move in his timetable and according to his ways. And in that way, David serves us as an example in our generation. As we long for the kingdom to come in our hearts, as sin loses its grip on us, and as we long for God's kingdom to come into the world, as the gospel goes forth with power, we want to understand that it's only by dependence upon God's power that God's kingdom advances in our hearts and in the world. So I want us this morning to look at the story. It's just 12 verses this morning, and then to consider its lesson for us. So let's begin with this story in 2 Samuel chapter 4. David won't take the kingdom by force, but he's waiting upon the Lord. In the first four verses, we see courage fail in Saul's house. Now, over the last three or four weeks, we've had a lot of names, and a couple of you have mentioned the confusion about the names. So we're going to put up this chart now. And in this chart, we have the house of David at the time of 2 Samuel chapter 4. I'm not going to go through all these names, but we have David, six of David's sons, David's general Joab, Joab's brother Abishai, and Joab's brother Asahel, who's in red because he's already been killed by Abner. Now, if we'll go to the next slide, here's the house of Saul at the time of 2 Samuel chapter 4. We have Saul, of course, who's now been killed along with his son Jonathan and two of Jonathan's brothers on Mount Gilboa during that battle. And we have Abner now dead as of last week, killed by Joab, David's general. The only two remaining people, the only two remaining uh, contenders for the throne are Ishbosheth, who's Saul's remaining son, and Mephibosheth, who's Saul's grandson through Jonathan. So that's where we stand at 2 Samuel chapter 4. Look at verse 1 again. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who, well, let's stop there for a minute. Ishbosheth's courage fails. He's the last man standing. His father is dead, his brothers are dead, and Abner, they're all dead. And we've learned over the last two weeks that he was a puppet king. He's propped up by Abner's reputation and will and power. And now that Abner's gone, Ishbosheth panics. He does not have the courage to press this civil war forward without Abner present. And he loses heart, and all of Israel loses heart with him. They panic, they're disturbed and terrified. And then we meet some wicked men who are standing in the shadows. Look at verse 2. Now, Saul's son, he's referring to Ishbosheth, had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin, from Beroth. For Beroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Barathites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there until this day. 
Now, these two men, the narrator says, are captains of raiding bands for Ishbosheth. Raiding apparently is very common at this point in Israel's history. And these two men are brothers. Their father, Ramon, and then he tells us in this parenthetical explanation that's somewhat hard to discern, that these men are part of a, a tribe or a group of people who are living among the Benjamites, but probably are not Benjamites themselves. Though up until this point, they've been loyal to Saul's house, Benjamin. Now look at verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. And he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now this verse feels random. The first question I asked this week was, why? Why does he randomly insert this verse about Mephibosheth and then not come back to him at all? Well, here's the family chart again. Other than Ishbosheth, this is the only viable heir to Saul's throne. And it's down to Saul, Saul's son Ishbosheth, and it's down to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is five years old when his father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul are killed in the battle on Mount Gilboa. And we learn in chapter 2 that Ishbosheth has reigned for two years as king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And that means that Mephibosheth is probably seven years old at the time this happens, which means he's too young to rule meaningfully and his feet have been injured. When his brave nurse hears the news that his father and grandfather are killed on Mount Gilboa, she scoops up the boy and she flees. She knows that this royal child's life is endangered. But tragically, in her haste, she trips and falls and Mephibosheth's feet are injured. He's either partly paralyzed or his feet are disfigured in some way that won't allow him to bear weight and to walk. And the people around him, the people still loyal to Saul's household, don't view this child as a... a uh, as someone who could take the throne. Now that's Saul's house and the courage that's failing. In verses five through eight, we come to the assassination that's successful in Ishbosheth's house. Look at verse five again. Now the sons of Remon, the Barathite, Rechab and Banna set out about the heat of the day. They came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was getting ready to take his noonday rest. Now, the worthless captains of his raiding parties set out for Ishbosheth's home, and they arrive at noon in the heat of the day when the king is fast asleep. And it's good to see that naps are biblical. <laughs> now, look at verse 6. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. And when they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, the narrator is giving us more details here, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. And they took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. And they pretend to grab wheat from the interior of the house. And maybe they're allowed into the house because they're recognized. Their faces that the, the servants and the guards of Ishbosheth recognize. But while he sleeps, they shamefully take his life and take off his head. Look at verse 8. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. I have so many questions. So many questions about how they get this head up to David in Hebron. 
They remind King David that this is Ishbosheth. This is Saul's son. This is the son of your enemy, and we have given him to you today. And they say to him, God has finally avenged you. God has finally avenged you against your enemies. And here is the head of the only remaining person who could stand against your, your rule over a unified Israel. And they believe that they will be repaid by David. David instead will guarantee justice for Ishbosheth. Look at verses 9 through 12. In verse 9, David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimon the Barathite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Let's stop there in the middle of the sentence. David is not happy. The primary reason that David is not happy is because it is the Lord who has redeemed his life. David is clear about that. The Lord is my redeemer. I do not need your help. God is my shelter. God is the, my very present help in trouble. God is the one who sets my feet upon a rock. God is the lifter of my head. God is the one who prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God is the one who strengthens my right hand. God redeems me. God is my defender. God is my faithful shepherd. I have no need for your wicked interventions in my life. Now verse 10. When one told me, David says, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Remember the Amalekite comes to David when he's in Ziklag outside of the land of Israel and the, and the, the Amalekite thinks he's bringing David good news and he claims to have ended Saul's life. But David says, I wasn't happy. I was enraged when that happened. How dare you lift your hand against God's chosen anointed king? And so he seized him and killed him. David guaranteed justice on that day for Saul. Look at verse 11. How much more then when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own bed, in his own house, on his own bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth. David saying, Saul was sinful. Saul attempted to take my life on many occasions and it was wrong for the Amalekite to claim to have killed him. Worse for him to seek a reward at my hand for taking away my enemy. How much worse was it for you two to kill a righteous man while he was in his house sleeping on his own bed? Shall I not now guarantee justice and destroy you from the earth. And in verse 12, that's what David does. David commanded his young men and they killed him and they cut off their hands and their feet and they hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Having guaranteed justice, David has the bodies destroyed and hangs them in a public place. This kind of cold-blooded murder of innocent lives will not be tolerated under King David. God will make David king, but it will not be by force. The wicked plotting of these evil men will not force God's hand. David will not take the throne. David will take the throne just as God promised when God is ready and according to God's ways. Now here's the lesson. David would not make himself king by force. David knew that God would make him king 
but he would not take the throne by force. David did wage a civil war back and forth with Ishbosheth's northern Israelite coalition. He did wage war, but he would not murder his adversaries in cold blood. That includes Saul in the cave. It includes Saul asleep in the camp. And David would not tolerate those who did. That includes the murderer of Saul or Abner or Ishbosheth. David is waiting for God to work. He would not sin to accomplish his purposes in taking the throne. And here's how the spiritual lesson connects to us. At least one way. The church can't advance God's kingdom by force either. Jesus has left the church with a vital task. Here's how he puts it in Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The gospel of my kingdom, it will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. But this task cannot be completed by force. It cannot be completed in our own strength, but by steady dependence upon God's power. Now, God's power shows up in two ways. The Spirit of God and the Word of God. The Spirit of God, as I said earlier, works through the Word of God that's proclaimed and that's protected and defended by the people of God. The Holy Spirit is the empowering animating helper that Jesus promised in John chapter 16. When the spirit of truth comes, the spirit of truth will guide you into all the truth. For the spirit will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And the spirit will declare to you all the things that are to come. The spirit will glorify me, Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the power that the church depends upon to finish the task that Jesus left for us. Make disciples of all nations. Proclaim my kingdom in all the earth. And the Spirit is the one who enables the church to do that work. The Spirit instructed the apostles to write the New Testament. And it's that Bible empowered by the Spirit that is explosively powerful. And that's why Jesus tells the disciples between his resurrection and his return to the Father to wait. Luke 24, 49. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he did it. Jesus sends his very spirit and the spirit becomes the empowering, animating force that transformed the hearts of Jesus's followers. And strengthened by the spirit, Jesus's church began to daringly proclaim the word of God. In Isaiah 55, we read that just like water and snow come down from the heavens and don't return void, but instead water and sustain the earth so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Or Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Or Hebrews 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Church, Jesus has left us with a task, but we cannot advance his kingdom in our own strength. Instead, we must depend on God's power, his spirit, and his word. Here's Spurgeon again. God uses preaching and prayer to bring about revival, to advance his kingdom. And here are two ways this morning that we can do this practically. Two ways that we can advance his kingdom while depending on his power, not our own strength, and certainly not by force. The first way is to reject attractional means, trends, and trust the raw power of God's ways. Reject attractional trends and trust the raw power of God's ways, how God does things. Here's what I mean. God told us how he will build the church. Devote yourselves to word and prayer. We see that constantly in the book of Acts. To gain a crowd quickly, a church family may feel the pressure to downplay or to sideline prayer and the word and to push other things ahead, to push other things to the front that may seem more attractive to the neighbors around us. Here's the former pastor, Jared Wilson. Attractional ministry, he says, is doing church ministry in a way that the primary purpose is to make Christianity appealing. Attractional ministry is doing church ministry in a way where the primary purpose of our ministry is to make Christianity appealing. And he goes on to say, an attractional church conducts worship and ministry according to the desires and values of potential consumers. A church thinks about their potential consumers and constructs a ministry and a worship service according to the desires and values of those potential consumers. If the goal of a church is simply to fill up the building, then all manner of chaos might occur. And there are overt examples of pastors descending onto platforms on zip lines. I'm not sure that's attractive. But then there are more subtle examples. There are ways of preaching that avoid the sharp edges of God's word or sideline it completely. There are ways of praying that are obligatory and forced or formulaic in the gathering of God's people rather than desperately calling on him together as a family. There are ways of singing that stick to songs that are theologically thin or absent. There are ways for us to sing simple songs that are still theologically true and rich. And there are ways of gathering people, gathering them around politics or life stage or interests rather than a shared dependence on the gospel. Now, it is right for us to be thoughtful in our gatherings. We want to try when we can to explain what we're doing and why, to explain the words that we're using so that visitors and our children understand the words that we use and the things that we're doing. Paul seems to have this in mind in 1 Corinthians 14, when he wants what happens in the church to be intelligible, even to a non-Christian friend who might come. And it's right for us to gather 
together in a way that showcases the power of the gospel to unify a people, devoted to God and faithful to each other. It's right for us to yearn that God would add to our numbers daily. It's what we see in Acts chapter 2 as the church is devoted to itself, devoted to prayer and devoted to the word. But in our yearning for the lost to be saved, we can't forget that it is not our frantic attempts to attract that advance the kingdom. Rather, it is the raw power of God on display. So here are some categories, some categories to help our, our frame of mind. The first category is farther versus faster, farther versus faster. We are tempted to sprint when a marathon requires the proper pacing and we are in a marathon. The work of the gospel is usually a long work. There are long seasons of sowing and tending and fighting sin. And then there are seasons of harvesting. And sometimes God provides a miraculous revival, a reawakening of the church or the reawakening of a Christian or the quick putting to death of sin in the heart of a follower of Christ. But usually God works through the everyday work of the church that is just as thrilling a church giving themselves to the steady diet of feasting on God's word and depending upon God's spirit. A church committed to sharing the gospel regularly, baptizing new Christians and teaching one another to obey all that Christ has commanded. Farther versus faster. Eternal versus immediate would be another category. Eternal versus immediate. We long for visible results, but we are part of an invisible kingdom. In Luke 17, 20, we read that being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God isn't coming in ways that can be observed. It's not going to be this massive revolt against Rome. The kingdom of God isn't coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The work of the gospel is transforming individual sinners into Christ's likeness. Jesus says to Pilate while he's on trial that his kingdom is not of this world. Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then my followers would rise up. Instead, God's kingdom is subversive. It traverses nations. God's kingdom is gathering a church from every people, tribe, and nation a kingdom that is eternal and a kingdom that is coming. And so we're willing to wait for eternity to see how God used our faithfulness by his power, according to his grace, to bring in a harvest of fruit. Farther versus faster, eternal versus immediate, convictions versus compromise. It can be tempting to compromise, to cover up God's word in order to be effective but if we love our neighbor, then we will stand firm on our biblical convictions. We won't water down the word. We will lovingly speak the truth and we will trust the spirit to work through the word that he inspired to bring life. We will trust God's wisdom for putting into God's word exactly what he put there. We will trust God's wisdom and his righteousness for calling us to be conformed to him. And we will reject attractional trends to force a kingdom advance. 
and instead trust the raw power of God's ways. So as we think about our life together, we think about a life that's devoted to the word and devoted to prayer. Now, here's the second way we might be tempted to force a kingdom advance in our own strength. Reject combative instincts and trust the explosive power of a daring church. Reject combative instincts and trust the explosive power of a daring church. Now, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean to imply that we aren't at war. We are at war. Our enemy, Satan, has real yet limited authority in this world. 1 John 5, 19, John writes, We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where Paul writes, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. You can see the blinding power of Satan to distort and to hide the truth. And so we must put on the armor of God because we are engaged in a war. But the war is spiritual and our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's not our neighbor. Therefore, we must be discerning in how we engage with our neighbors who are blinded by our enemy. So though we are sobered by the resistance to Jesus's gospel, though we are sobered by the suffering and the marginalization of the church, that may bring, we still must be clear on how we fight. And one way we fight is to keep our heads, to keep a proper perspective, to make sure that a biblical grid is in place, a biblical grid that tells us suffering now, glory then, cost now, reward then, striving now, rest then. In 1 Peter, Peter is attempting to help construct this kind of proper perspective in the church. And he writes in chapter 4 about Christians who are no longer living for their own will and desire and purpose. They've given that up. And instead, God's will and God's desires and God's purposes become the thing that motivates and drives Christians. And then in 1 Peter 4, verse 4, he writes this, they, that is the world around you, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, that is just extreme sin with, a, with one's own body, and they malign you, that is they speak misleadingly about the evil that you're doing. They lie about you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then jump to verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter wants two things to be crystal clear for the church. Two things that must drive our perspective. One, don't be surprised when persecution comes for the sake of following Christ. If Jesus suffered, then we will suffer. Peter doesn't want us to think it's strange when persecution and resistance rises against us. If we follow Jesus faithfully, then we will walk through some fiery trials together. But second, Peter throws our gaze into eternity. He reminds us that those who lie about us, those who malign and persecute us, 
will give an account to one who is ready to judge. Those things don't vanish into thin air. Peter wants us to remember that Jesus is a judge. And second, he says in verse 13, you will rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So in the first place, remember trials and persecution, they're common. Second, don't forget your eternal perspective. Suffering now, glory then. Cost now, reward then. And then Peter gets practical. This time in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. He writes, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. He's saying, if you suffer for sinning, well, that's a different thing. But if you suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, Peter says. Don't fear those who persecute you, nor be troubled over it. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. Don't be driven by your fear of those who persecute and resist. Instead, in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that's in you. You see what should mark Jesus's people? There should be a hope inside of us that is somewhat confounding to our neighbors. There's a hopefulness, even amidst suffering and marginalization, that should provoke our neighbors to ask us. And when we make that defense, Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So this means that Christians can go to the school board meeting without fear. Honoring Christ as Lord. We fear Christ, not those who may stand against him and his church. And Christians can advocate for the government to enact just laws that preserve human life and dignity. And Christians can stand their ground in a classroom and in homes. And they do this because they're prepared to make a defense. They're thoughtful and careful and persuasive. They give their reason for hope and they do it with gentleness and respect, therefore maintaining a good conscience when slandered. We don't need to be combative. We must not compromise. We can stand courageously on the explosive power of the church when it depends on God's spirit. I want to end here and if you're familiar with the Bible, this will be a familiar passage to you. This is in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John have just been released from arrest. And they've been warned by the religious leaders not to preach about Christ. Stop preaching about Jesus. And Peter and John collect the church that's in Jerusalem. And they pray the following together. Acts chapter 4 verse 29. Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you see it? 
They're dependent on God's power, His Spirit, and His Word. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, He downloads special confidence and strength to them, and they speak the Word of God with boldness. They are not cowed. Instead, they continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. The Spirit strengthens the church to advance Jesus' kingdom. They are dependent on Him. They're not manufacturing their own strength. They're not forcing this through bravado or self-effort or optimism. They're dependent on God's power. So Charity, let's stand on their shoulders. Let's not advance the kingdom by force, but by dependence on God's raw power. Let's pray. Well, Spirit, we pray that you would strengthen your church in this country to proclaim your truth with boldness. And Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would work mightily in our midst. We long to be filled with your strength like the early church was in Acts chapter 4. So that we might speak your word with boldness. So that we might lift up Christ for all to see. So that we might make a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. Our eyes are fixed on your eternal kingdom. Spirit, help us to be faithful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.